0: So that's what's on the screen for John 12, um, 12 to 26. And um, isn't it amazing that we have a God who reveals himself in creation and in Jesus and in these words breathed out by God who we're worshipping. And thank God, don't we come with thankful hearts? Because we would, we would know nothing we would know nothing about this man who rode a donkey into Israel. So praise God that we have this and we have it in our language. So let's, let's read this and at the end I'll say this thing and you'll say that thing because that is our heart. Thank you God that we can read this and know it and that it's true. So let's watch Jesus arrive in Jerusalem. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another you see that you're gaining nothing look the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus' your words are... so strange to us when we take time to consider that was your answer. You say hard and strange things, but your words are life and truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would break open our hearts so that we can really believe and follow no matter what. Help us, Jesus, as we listen to Andrew. Help us to hear you and see you and know you. Come, Holy Spirit. Oh, God, thank you that there is forgiveness and grace as we gather here together. Come, Lord, and may our worship even in our listening. May it be a blessing to you. And may we walk out of here, Lord, different to when we arrived. Come and have your will, Lord, we pray. We pray in your name, Jesus, our King. Amen.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Uh, Rachel's right. Uh, Jesus does say some hard and strange things in this passage this morning. That's what we're going to look at uh, just now. But uh, before we we begin, um, I want you to picture the scene. Um, Let's try and put ourselves back in this time and this place. Um, It's Jerusalem I don't know if if any of you have ever been to Jerusalem. I haven't. I'd love to go, and hopefully I will get to go there someday. It's Jerusalem, um, but it's not the sprawling metropolis that it is now. It's Jerusalem on Sunday the 29th of March in the year AD 33. At least that's what the scholars tell me. It's the first day of the week, it's the, the not just any week, it's the week of the Festival on Leavened Bread, and this week-long party festival finishes with the highlight, which is the Feast of Passover. Passover was the festival that, re, that, that kind of celebrated and remembered how God had, had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, you might know the story, God executed his judgment on the Egyptians, um, but... Uh, through bringing about the death of all the firstborns in the land, except for the people of Israel who were, slave, or who were saved when they sacrificed an innocent lamb instead. And now Jerusalem was a city of about forty to 60,000 people at that time, um, so probably something less than Balamina, the mighty Balamina. Um, but at this time, every year, the, 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 the city grew to six times that number because people came from all over the place. Even here we see Greeks coming to the fe- to the festival. Now it's hard to imagine what that would look like if that happened in our city. Six times the the, the people coming into the city. But the streets would certainly be lined with people. It would be packed. There wouldn't be any space in, in any houses or any hotels. I was trying to think. It might be a, a little bit like... Uh, Glastonbury or something, when you see before and after, you see this empty field, and then you see hundreds of thousands of people just descending this one place. That's kind of what it looked like in my head. But Jerusalem was also, it was, there was loads of political pressure at this time as well. Because remember that Israel um, lived under occupation of the Roman Empire. The Romans uh, are the, the Romans are in charge, but they've allowed the Jewish leaders to maintain some control as long as they stay under the authority of the emperor. And these big festivals were always a tricky time for the Romans. Because if you can imagine, this is a time when all the Jews are, are coming together to celebrate their, their Jewish nationality, their Jewish religion, which was all intermingled for them. And the Romans were worried that, that through all this excitement, that a, a revolt could break out. And so they were keeping a watchful eye. You can imagine the extra Roman soldiers, uh, you know, walking the streets during this week. And then there's Jesus, in complete contrast to the might of this empire. Jesus, who for three years has, has been going through all of Israel, preaching this gospel of the kingdom of God, a new order that's coming into the world. And it's this precise moment on this day of this week when he comes to Jerusalem. And it's in the first part of this passage that Rachel read for us. If you have your Bible, keep it open at John chapter 12. We're going to be just kind of going through it. It's in the first part of this that John tells us about Jesus coming into this, the, the city. And what's significant about Jesus entering Jerusalem in this way is that he is declaring something. He is, by his words and his actions, declaring that he is king. He is king of Israel and of the world. Look at verses 12 to 13 again. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is a huge deal. You see, this is a problem for the Romans because there was only one king and that one king was Caesar. In fact, he wasn't just king, he was God here are crowds of people openly claiming that Jesus is king. And it's not just a problem for the Romans. It's also a problem for the Jewish religious leaders too. You see, when the people are shouting out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're actually quoting a psalm. They're quoting Psalm 118. Now, Travis went out with the kids, I think, but a psalm on Palm Sunday, not a psalm on Palm Sunday. Um, They're quoting Psalm 118. And this Psalm tells us about the coming Messiah. And so what is happening here is that the Jewish people have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. They recognize that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the promised Messiah King. Not only that, Jesus himself, through his actions, proclaims himself to be king. He finds a young donkey, verses 14 and 15, say, and he gets on it. Just as written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, the prophet spoke of the Messiah king, God's chosen king. And this king would ride into the holy city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And so the Lord, by choosing to enter Jerusalem this way, he's making it absolutely clear that he is the king. He's saying emphatically, yes, I am the king of Israel. It's a huge statement. But Jesus is more than just the king of Israel. He's the king of the entire world. Look at verses 17 to 19 for me. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, we'll come back to that in a second, and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see um, that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You see, just a few days before this, Jesus had a friend called Lazarus, and Lazarus had died. And the day before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, uh, Jesus had stopped at Lazarus's tomb outside the city and raised him back to life. And this really kind of dramatic scene, it, the, the tomb is opened after Lazarus has been dead and buried for three days, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man hears the voice of God and walks out of the tomb. Now clearly... If somebody who has been dead and buried for three days is brought back to life, it creates a wee bit of a stir, right? Um, Even before uh, iPhones and social media, this had spread like wildfire. And so when the people hear that Jesus, who had supposedly raised this man from the dead, has come to Jerusalem, they all want to go see him. Who is this? We want to go see this man. And by this point, the religious leaders and the Pharisees have already planned to kill Jesus, that plot is already in place. And they see all the crowds following Jesus. And they say, look, our plan, it looks like our plans are getting us nowhere. The whole world is going after Jesus. And it's almost as if they don't really realize what they're saying. Because Jesus is not just king of Israel, but he is king of the world. Jesus hasn't just come to save Jews, but to save all people. His kingdom is for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. What happens next just proves that Jesus is king of all people. Some Greeks, who are apparently in town for the festival as well. They come to Philip, one of the twelve apostles, and they ask if they can see Jesus. They say, "Um, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and uh, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And then the hard and strange things begin. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why are the Greeks at this uh, very quintessentially Jewish feast? Well, we don't know why they decided to come, but we can work out why God had brought them there, right? Because God wants to show, and, and John is underlining here, that Jesus really is the king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Through the glorification of Jesus, i.e. his death and resurrection, Jesus becomes the king of the whole world. These Gentiles, these foreigners that represent that Jesus is the king for everyone. Jesus really is the Messiah. He really did come into the world to be king of Israel. That's why he got on the donkey to fulfill the prophecy. And and Jesus is more than the Jewish Messiah. He's more than the king of Israel. He's the king of the whole world. He's the king over all the nations and all the states and all the races. There's not one person on earth who is not subject to the rule of Jesus. I was thinking about this, uh, this passage this week while, you know, just kind of seeing the news of the week unfold. And I was thinking about how evil men try to prove to themselves and tr- prove to the world that they have power by crushing weaker people. But that's just an illusion of power, isn't it? One day, Jesus will crush evil forever because he is king in Russia. He is king over Ukraine. He is king over NATO. He is king over America. He's king over Ireland. He's king over the UK. He's king over Belfast. He's king over South Belfast. He's king over the streets that we walk around every day. And these same streets that we live on and walk on are full of people who don't even know their own king. And our job is to lift Jesus up, to make him known, to show people that there is only one person in charge and his name is Jesus. That's why we planted this church. We planted this church to display Jesus to the people of South Belfast so that he might, as he says later on in John chapter 12, draw all people to himself. These Greeks say, we, we want to see Jesus, and they're right to want to see him. And you know, the world wants to see Jesus. This is, this is true. Now, they might not know what they're looking for, but they know they need something. I'd say this is true of everyone that you could talk to. If you get really deep down in, people are looking for something, they might not know what they're looking for. And the truth is that only Jesus can fulfill the longings of our hearts. Only Jesus can bring about the kind of world that we all want. And these Greeks tell Philip, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, he's not talking about fame and glory in a worldly kind of way, right? He's not saying, yes, finally, I'm going to get the recognition that I deserve, right? Soon I'll be getting the best hotel rooms and going on the talk shows and I'll have millions of followers. Uh, the time has come for re- me to really like, kick this thing up a notch. Jesus is not saying that at all. You see, what we see now, and the disciples couldn't see at the time, was that Jesus is referring to his death. There's only one way for the Son of Man to be glorified, and it's not by conquering kingdoms and armies. It's not by becoming famous. It's not by, be- by getting more money and more influence. It's by dying. What a strange thing for a triumphal king to say. Maybe in your Bible, it says at the start of this passage, the triumphal entry. What a strange thing for someone who says, I am king of the world, and then he says, I'm going to die. What a strange thing for a king to say. The Greeks want to see Jesus, and Jesus says, well, listen, in a few days, they're going to see me. They're going to see the real me. They're going to see what the glory of Jesus looks like when I'm nailed to a cross. And Jesus is saying, I will be the most, the most glorious person in the universe when my Father raises me from the dead. When I'm given a name that is above every other name, and when every, uh, when every knee will bow at my name, then they will see me. Jesus' path to glory is through suffering. Do you see that? You see, as much as Jesus is declaring that he is king, He says this thing that they weren't expecting. Truly, truly, verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus says, I'm going to be like a seed that is buried in the ground. What a strange thing for a king to say. This does not sound like somebody who is being triumphant, someone who is conquering, does it? Just that day, he is ridden into Jerusalem as a triumphant king. So, now, so how can he on one hand be declaring that he is king of Israel and king of the whole world, and then on the other hand be saying that he's going to die? How can this be? I mean, every other king in history, when they die, they stop being a king, don't they? When the king dies, somebody else takes their place. And, and the people say, the king is dead, long live the king. The old king is dead, long live the new king. But Jesus is saying, I'm not like any other king. I'm not going to go into the ground and rot and decompose. Death, for me, is just the beginning. I'm going to be like a seed that goes into the ground and then bursts into life. My pathway to glory is through suffering and death. And here's the crazy thing. I think Jesus has got a pretty big following at this point. We see the crowds are coming out to see him. They want him to be their king. And he could have chosen to to live a long and happy life. He could have chosen to go after that fame and fortune. He He could have chosen the things of this world. But he knows that without following this path of death and burial, just like a seed going into the ground, he could not bear fruit. In other words, without dying, we couldn't be saved. Without Jesus dying we couldn't be saved. And Jesus knows us and he says, I'm going to die on my way to glory and I will bear much fruit. And then you will be saved and the Greeks will be saved and the Irish people will be saved and the British people will be saved. And all who believe in me will be saved. But this can't happen unless I go into the ground like a seed. Just like the Greeks, if we want to see Jesus, we must see him in his death. To see Jesus and not accept his crucifixion and resurrection is to just see another teacher, another prophet, another martyr. But to see Jesus and be saved is to see him in his death. So we need to ask ourselves, what kind of king do you want? And maybe you think, well, listen, I don't want any king. I don't want anybody to rule me. I'm in charge of my own life. Well, that's all well and good, but let me tell you, the truth is that we're all ruled by something. We're all under the influence of something. The world forces around us, we all submit. Whether it's market forces or governments or social media, we have influencers, for crying out loud, who tell us what to wear and what to eat and and what to think about certain issues. And we all willingly submit. But all these powers are temporary powers. There's only one true king, and one day he will do away with all these things, and he will be revealed as the only true king. So what kind of king do we want? We can either choose not to be ruled by Jesus now, or we can choose to submit to his kingship. And either way, his kingdom is going to be fully revealed, isn't it? Either way, every knee is going to bow. You will bow before Jesus someday. So the choice is we either reject him as king now and on that day be rejected by him or we accept him as king now and on that day be accepted by him forever. Jesus is king of the whole world and he will reign forever. So what kind of king do you want? Now there's something else that Jesus reveals here. There's a truth that we need to see. Jesus says, I'm going to be glorified through death and suffering. And if you want to see me, you need to become like me. And here's the point. If we are to follow Jesus into glory, we must also follow him into death. If we're to follow Jesus into glory, we we also must follow him into death. Look at what he says in verses 25 26. These are the hard and strange teachings that Rachel mentioned. Verse 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus begins with the truth about himself. He says, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is going to happen through his death, right? This is what he's talking about. He's already said, now it's going to be like a, a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. But then he makes the truth about himself into a truth about us. You see what he does? He makes this truth about himself uh, going to be like a seed falling in the ground and dying. That bears much fruit, but he also makes that a truth about himself because if we follow Jesus, if we want to become like Jesus, we must follow him. John Piper has this great phrase and he says, Jesus dying for our salvation is his design for our imitation. (laughs) I love that. His design for our imitation. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying, if we are to become like Jesus, if we are to follow him, then we will walk the same path that he walked. If Jesus loved his life and went after fame and fortune, if he had decided that I'm going to, there's a big crowd here in Jerusalem. I could, you know, set up shop here and I could get even more followers. He could have done that. But if he had went after that fame and fortune, he would ultimately have lost his glory, wouldn't he? And it's the same for us. If we love our lives, we will ultimately lose them. But if we hate our lives in this world, we will actually gain eternal life. Now. Please don't hear me wrong. This is not a license to be miserable. If you're a Christian and you're being miserable all the time, stop it. Christians should be the most joyful and most thankful and most happy people in the world because we have more than the entire world itself. Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't enjoy our lives. But what Jesus is saying is is that the things of this world should be of no value to us when compared to the eternal value of being with Him in the kingdom of heaven forever. That our, our true value, the thing that, 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 that it really captures our hearts, is the kingdom of heaven, not the things that we can accumulate in this world. This is the call on all of us who claim to follow Jesus. We will, hate, will we hate our lives in this world? That's a hard and strange thing. Will you hate your life? Will you put no value on the things of this world when compared to the things of heaven? Jesus says, will you follow me on the path to Calvary? We sometimes just want to follow Jesus when it's easy, don't we? Well, we serve the Son of God in this way. Now, how do we know Jesus? Rachel already alluded to this whenever she, uh, she was giving us our scripture reading. We know Jesus by his word, and we know him by his actions. And he says, I am going to glory. I am gonna, I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to bear much fruit, i.e. I'm going to multiply my kingdom and bring many people to, to join me, be saved. And the way I am going to do this is by hating my life in this world and by suffering and dying for you. But then he says, follow me, die with me, serve me. Hate your life in this world. That's a hard calling, isn't it? Follow me. Die with me. Hate your life. Serve me. That's a hard calling. And Jesus, you see, he doesn't just ask us to do these things. He does it. He doesn't just... uh, Expect us to do something he doesn't first do. Jesus is both our redeemer and our example. In other words, he saves us through his own death. But then he also shows us that this is our path to glory too. To follow Jesus is to die. To die to ourselves. To die to the world. There is no doubt that this is a hard calling. And nowhere in the Bible does God try to dress this up as an easy path. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The Christian life is simple, but it's not easy. The Christian life is simple, but it's not easy. Simple in that we we follow Jesus, forsake the world, but it's not easy. In these verses, Jesus gives us four hard callings. Verse 24, Jesus calls us to die. He says, the grain must die. We have to be like a seed that falls into the ground. Verse 25, Jesus calls us to hate our lives. He says, whoever loves their life will lose it, and whoever hates their life in this world. Verse 26, Jesus calls us to follow him. He says, if anyone serves me, they must follow me. I I think follower of Jesus is one of the the kind of most common... uh, the Concan kind of language we use in village for, for discipleship and being Christians, we talk about being Christ's followers a lot. Uh, uh, but Jesus says, well, listen, if you want to be my followers, you have to follow me truly. And where is he going at this point when he says this? He's going to the cross. He's going to suffer and die. And he says, if you want to serve me, you're going to have to follow me there too. Follow me into death. Verse 26 again, Jesus calls us to serve him. He says, if anyone serves me. Now, this is a hard calling. He's saying, are you willing to do my bidding? Are you going to go where I ask you to go? Are you going to do what I tell you to do? Are you going to become my servant? These are four hard things. And yet, this is what it means to be a Christian. To be a disciple of Jesus doesn't lead to an easy, cushy life. To be a follower of Jesus will lead us way outside of our comfort zones. We won't live the same kind of lives as, as other people. Sometimes we'll lose friends. A lot of the time, people will think we're strange and old-fashioned or even dangerous. We will give up money and resources. We'll often not be popular Sometimes it means giving up your life and moving across the world like Nathan and Emily. Uh, but, and, and all the time, it may not mean that for you, but it will definitely mean giving up your life to go across the street to your neighbors and, and the needy. It's a hard thing. John Piper again says, it's, a hard, it's hard to be a servant in a world of power. It's hard to be a servant in a world of power when everyone else is trying to gain money and influence and comfort we're called to die and be servants. This is what Jesus calls us to do. It's so opposite to the way the world tells us to live, isn't it? So opposite. We're programmed by the world uh, to avoid discomfort at all costs, right? Suffering is never a good thing. We should aim for comfort and an easy life. That, that's actually what we're programmed to from childhood, isn't it, right? You've got to do well in your GCSEs. Why? So you can do A-levels. Why? So, so you can get to, uh, get to university. Well, why do I need to get to university? So you can get a good, good degree. Why? So you can get a good job. Why do I need to have a good job? So I can learn lots of money. Why? So you can have a comfortable life. And then one day you can retire, hopefully as young as possible. So you can spend as much time as possible enjoying the comfort. It's programmed into us from an early age that comfort is king. We find ourselves trapped in this system of working to find rest and working to find comfort. It's like a a vicious circle of death. (laughs) But Jesus offers us an alternative path. Being a disciple of Jesus is not the path towards comfort in this life. Being a disciple of Jesus will be costly for us. Some of you in this room know that all too dearly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which by the way, every Christian should read, he, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he wasn't making that up because we've just read that here, haven't we? On Monday night in our prayer gathering just last week, we spent some time praying for our church's mission in this part of Belfast, Right? We want to be serving our community. We want to be going to those in need and providing for those in prayer. We want our friends and neighbors to be brought from death to life and salvation through faith in Jesus. We want Jesus' kingdom to come in Belfast as it is in heaven. We want and desire these things. And yet, these are kind of dangerous things to pray. Why? Because when we ask God to make us more active in mission... When we ask him to make us more fruitful as a church and as individuals, that means that we must, first of all, die to ourselves. Jesus tells us that it's only the seed that falls into the ground that produces fruit. But if we want to be a flourishing, fruitful church, we will have to die, first of all, to ourselves. Die to our own desires. Die to our own sin. It will mean giving sacrificially. It will mean giving up of our time to serve those in need. It will mean a radical reordering of the priorities in our lives. So here's a question that we need to ask, each of us on our own and together as a church family. And the question is this what in us needs to die? What in us needs to die? What am I holding on to that is preventing me from following Jesus in the path he has called me to? What in our church needs to die in order for us to be fruitful and flourish? This is a scary thing to ask, and yet it's what Jesus calls us to. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, they must follow me. This is a hard calling that Jesus presents to us. But here's the truth. As much as this calling is hard, it's also glorious. It's also glorious. Just as Jesus died and was glorified, if we follow him on this path to death, we too will enter glory. And in these verses, not only does Jesus give us four hard callings, he gives us four glorious promises. Verse 24, he promises that we will be fruitful. He says, if the seed dies, it will bear much fruit. Dying to ourselves is not pointless, guys. God uses this to bring fruit into our lives, to bring people into his kingdom, and to bring his kingdom into the world. We get to be used by God to advance his kingdom, something that will last forever. Verse 25, Jesus promises us us eternal life. He says, yes, if we love our lives, we will lose them, but if we hate our lives, we will keep it to eternal life. Now, here's what this means. This means that whatever we sacrifice for Jesus in this life will be repaid to us a hundred times over in eternity. A lesson that I had to teach to myself this week. The seed put into the ground now, when you die to yourself, is like a deposit in the bank of heaven. We might lose everything this world values, but what we gain far, far outweighs that cost. We will have eternal life. This is what Jesus promises to to those who follow him. Verse 26, Jesus promises that we will be with him in heaven. He says, and where I am, my servant will be there also. This is Jesus' Absolutely, cast iron, guaranteed that if we follow him, no matter how costly the path, we will be with him in heaven. If we follow Jesus to the cross, we will follow him to glory. Verse 26, Jesus promises we will be honored by God. And this is one of those sentences that I've read a lot. And then this week, it just blew me away. I have to be honest with you. I don't, think we can, I don't think we could ever underestimate what this means. Yes, the call is hard. Yes, the path is costly. But what do we gain? We will be honored by God. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. That's like me honoring a worm or an ant or an amoeba. That's like Finley when he builds wee creations out of Lego, honoring one of those wee Lego men. Yes, we will be honored by God, the almighty God, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who has all knowledge and all power, the one without beginning and without end, will heap honor on us. Do you see how incredible this is? Do you see it? Do you see what we receive when we follow Jesus? Because what we receive in Jesus is far above and beyond anything we could ever gain if we don't follow him. Now, even if one of us in this room, now it's unlikely because I know most of you, but even if one of us went on to become the richest person in the world, no offense to anyone here, but it's probably not going to happen. If it is, give to the church. Um, (laughs) Even if that happened, and one of you went on to have uh, enough money to buy all the comfort and all the power and all the influence with millions of followers, even if you went on to attain all of that, It's nothing compared to what is ahead for us in Jesus. Eternal life with Jesus in heaven, being honored by the Father. What could ever compare to that? But but the sad reality, the crazy thing is that most of us sacrifice all those things that's promised to us in Jesus for nowhere near having all the power and wealth and comfort in the world. We actually sacrifice all of that for much less, for maybe just the pursuit of that, or maybe just a glimpse of that. What Jesus offers to us far outweighs anything that we could ever gain in this world and far outweighs anything we will ever sacrifice for him. Eternal life with Jesus in heaven, being honored by the Father. What could ever compare to that? Jesus says, follow me, die to yourself, hate the the things of the world and become my servant. And when you do, I will give you eternal life with me in heaven being honored by the Father. This is the future that is promised to us in Jesus. So what's the way forward? How do we do this? Well, we need to keep both the hard callings and the glorious promises in view, okay? We need to to see each of these things because if we focus just on the hard part, here's what happens. We just see how difficult this task is and how hard this is. And then we miss the whole picture and we won't be as willing to sacrifice anything because it's just too hard. I can't do it. And then we miss out in the power and the freedom that Jesus offers to us here and now. You might remember the story of, in Mark chapter 10, of the rich young man that came to see Jesus. He had everything the world had to offer. And Jesus says, he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And he couldn't do it, so he goes away sad. Why? Because he was only focusing on the hard calling and not the glorious promise. And it'll be the same for us if we only see the the hard part. Now, likewise, if we only see the glorious promises, uh, then, then, then we just focus on what can Jesus do for me? What is Jesus offering to me? And we won't want to make the sacrifices at all because Jesus is someone who is supposed to give all this stuff to me. If our eyes are only on what Jesus can give to us and not what we can give to him, then we minimize what we have to sacrifice in order to follow him. So we need to keep both in focus. Now here's the thing, please don't be overwhelmed by this. Maybe you are, but please don't be thinking, oh no, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Maybe I'm not really in Jesus because I know that I am not very sacrificial. I I know that I have the tendency to be selfish. I know that I am rebellious. I know that I'm sometimes unwilling to trust and obey and follow him. Well, please don't panic. That may be your experience, but it's my experience too. I'm rebellious. I'm unwilling to die to myself. I'm self-centered. I'm all those things. Just ask Hayley. (laughs) That's my experience. But here's an incredible thing to think about. Your experience is not your ultimate authority. Your ultimate authority is the word of God. So what does God say about us? If you've trusted Jesus, if you're a Christian this morning, no matter how wavering your faith may be on a day-to-day basis, Lord, I'm barely hanging on. If you're trusting in Jesus, here's what God says about you. He says, Colossians 3 verse 3, You have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. Hidden with Christ in God. If you are a Christian, no matter how weak and tired and wavering you feel this morning, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. This is what happened to you when you became a Christian. When you first believed in Jesus, you became like a seed that was buried in the ground. You died. You were born again. A new life was made in you. This is what was represented in your baptism. You symbolically died and and, and were buried and then raised with Christ to walk in a new life. And this new life cannot ever be taken away from you. You please hear this. Your new life in Christ cannot ever be taken away from you. It is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, it's not up to you to keep it. I went to school with a guy a long time ago, obviously. um, And uh, I was, yeah, anyway, I was was a fairly new Christian at the time and uh, I was you know, very eager to talk to people about it. And um, he was like, he's like, you know, he's like, I'd love to be a Christian. This is like, you know, a 17-year-old guy. And he's like, I'd love to be a Christian, but I just couldn't keep it. Neither can I. (laughs) It's not up to us to keep our new life. God keeps it. And what God keeps can never be lost. Do you hear that? The death and resurrection of Jesus is our guarantee that this new life is ours forever and can never be taken away. And so this then becomes our motivation, our motivation to die to ourselves and live for Christ. Because when we became a Christian, when we trusted in Jesus, this is what already happened. We have already died. And so when we follow the path that he calls us to, to die to ourselves, to follow him, to serve him, it just means that we're walking in the reality of what has already happened. Life. If you're trusting Jesus, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And if you're not a Christian, this invitation is open to you to trust Him, to come to Him, to 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 actually uh, see that the things that that you're you're kind of finding your comfort and in your hope and and building your own kingdom on that that they that you know that they won't last forever. But He offers you something that will last forever. He offers you eternal life with Him in heaven being honored by God, and that invitation is open to you. You just have to trust in him and believe in him. Believe that he was the seed that that went into the ground for you. So church, may we be people who die to ourselves, who hate our lives, who follow Jesus and serve him. And when we do this, we know that we will also be people who produce much fruit. We We will receive eternal life. We will be with Jesus in heaven forever. And we will be honored by the Father. Come, Holy Spirit, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that, yes, it is strange and hard, but yet there's so much glory in there. Thank you for these amazing promises you have given to us. You're trusting in you. Father, I pray that you would renew a desire and a motivation within us this morning. Holy Spirit, lead us to want to die to ourselves again to want to uh, hate the things of this world and to follow Jesus no matter the cost and to serve him no matter the cost. And for anyone who doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray that right now would be the time when they open their hearts and accept you. Believe that Jesus is king. Come into his kingdom and receive all the goodness of the promises that are offered to, him, to, offer, to us in him. Um, and Father, as we come to the Lord's table now, I just pray that you would be with us, um, that you would share...